welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair event here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project, and I'm joined by my colleague Isabel Lopez from the Restart team. Hello. Welcome. In this episode, we are talking about repair, but from a very different angle from what we normally do. Uh, we are thrilled to welcome uh, Dr. Tarek Lubani from Gaza to the show. Tarek, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ugo. Tarek uh, is a Palestinian-Canadian doctor who doesn't just, so to say, work as a doctor, but has revolutionized the way we can consider 3D printing as a force for good to bring change where it's most needed. Can you please give us a little bit of an introduction uh, to your work, Tarek? The problem in Gaza is very multifactorial. Uh, Gaza is under a blockade uh, that's led by the Israelis, which means that lots of the medical equipment, even though it's theoretically not supposed to be caught by the blockade, is and is not available uh, at the hospital. In turn, what we've done is we've tried so many ways to get the equipment that we need to care for our patients. I also work in Canada. And so for me, it's particularly jarring the difference between the care that I can provide here and there. As such, uh, trying all of the different ways and, of course, trying and failing to import medical equipment, we finally decided to try to gain independence by making our own equipment that we need in-house in uh, the Gaza Strip. And, of course, we started with simple mechanical devices such as a stethoscope, uh, such as a tourniquet, things like this. And now we're moving on to more complex parts that involve electronics culminating, we hope, with a hemodialysis machine, a kidney replacement machine. So one uh, major breakthrough that just happened finally a couple of months ago is that uh, a product that you helped design, the 3D printed stethoscope, has now finally been acknowledged by the medical community as being 100% of the same quality compared to a professionally manufactured device costing a lot more. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Because it's quite incredible. When we first started working on the stethoscope, we couldn't have imagined that we would really be making no compromises in terms of quality. We thought, okay, we can produce this for $3. That's the cost of producing it to $2.40 or something like this. We thought, okay, we can produce it for so much cheaper, 1% of what it costs to buy the best brand you can buy on on uh, on the market. So we thought, okay, not a problem if it's not quite as good. And we were amazed as we did our acoustic quality experiments to find out that we were able to make something that was just as good. That was important because people in places like the Gaza Strip, places like the third world or low and middle income countries, they usually get garbage. They usually are told, oh, this is good enough go, go use this. And we didn't want that. I mean, at the very least, one of these days, I will be a patient here. 
and I want my care to be the same as it would be if I were a Canadian patient. So when we proceed with with any sort of medical device, we have to really go with the scientific rigors. And ultimately, that meant that our project culminated in a peer-reviewed publication published, of course, as open access in PLOS One. And that's the publication that proved the equivalence of the stethoscope to this much better premium brand stethoscope. Which cost a hundred times more. Which cost literally a hundred times more. Yes, they cost 250 or so dollars as opposed to our $2.40. Right. And uh, in terms of the work uh, that you do, how did you get the inspiration for 3D printing and particularly the stethoscope? Where, where did it all start? It, it really came in a few different stages, as so many of these things do. One of them was just the persistent lack of devices. I mean, you, you wouldn't even believe how little there is when you walk into the emergency in the Gaza Strip. And it just seems so unnecessary. The talent is here. We have lots of capabilities here. Uh, there's good engineering here. There's lots of very smart people. And the blockade only started in 2007. So people remember the days before the blockade, even though now I guess it's been 10 years. People remember what it was like before that, and people remember how to use equipment that was proper in many cases. When I went home after the war in 2012, I was sitting there playing with my nephew's little toy stethoscope that probably some underpaid uh, third world engineer had designed in just a day or two. And I thought to myself, this isn't the worst thing in the world. This isn't terrible. And so I thought if a little toy could do most of the job of a stethoscope, definitely a well-engineered device would be able to do all of the job of a stethoscope. We didn't know how successful we would be, but we really were. And in so doing, our the stethoscope was kind of our um, introductory project, just our way to get to know how to make a medical device. And in so doing, we ended up almost accidentally creating a culture of medical device creation. For example, lots of people, when they saw the stethoscope, they thought, oh, this is a simple device. But quite a few people, when they saw the stethoscope, they could see the potential. They thought, oh, my God, if we can create this, what else can we create? And that actually gave birth to probably our most important project in the Gazan context, which is the tourniquet. So the tourniquet is a critical piece of kit for pre-hospital physicians and paramedics everywhere. And it's what you use to stop bleeding. You put it on a limb, arm or leg, and you twist until the blood stops. Right. This is a, a device that most people might have heard about when doing a first aid class, but a lot of people have never seen in real life. And w why is it... I mean, it's obvious, obviously, to you, but what, why is it so crucial right now, specifically in Gaza? We were approached because the, the... So the wonderful thing about this is that I have almost nothing to do with the Tourniquet Project. It really is a testament to the success of the project in changing the culture among the engineers in Gaza. So our group was approached by 
uh, the disaster committee in Gaza, who had finished doing some analysis on the 2014 war and realized that out of the 2,500 deaths that there were, about half of them involved arm and leg uh, casualties, people who had died because they bled from their arm or leg, which in medicine, that is considered a preventable death. There's no reason to die because you bleed from an arm or a leg, really. You might lose your arm, you might lose your leg, but you shouldn't die from that. So as a result, the engineers in Gaza collaborated with the disaster committee in Gaza to come up with this tourniquet to try to prevent it in the next war. What none of us expected while we were working on this project is that more or less the next war would break out under our noses. And that happened during the series of largely peaceful protests that started at the end of March, where in one day, 1,000 people were shot. And 60% of them are leg injuries, and about 20% of them are arm injuries, mirroring the statistics that we saw during the war. What we've seen now is our project very quickly turned from one where we were just starting to lightly test into one where the product was rushed onto the field to try to save lives. That's why it's been so crucial over the last four weeks and going into the crescendo of this series of, of peaceful protests the Palestinians are doing, which uh, ends in mid-May. Right. So when you have it to do with all of these uh, injuries, uh, how do you like how does this work practically, this 3D printing of devices in the field? Does it all occur locally? You printing all of the devices there? Yes, clear, clearly, clearly 3D printing is not the technology we would choose when we need, for example, 10,000 right. tourniquets. But, but we don't have some of the mass manufacturing technology available like injection molding that we would want. The Israelis have been very careful to bomb any factory that looks like it can mass manufacture. So we've had to be very careful to decentralize our production to places that are much harder to bomb, like hospitals. We're making medical devices. We're not making weapons. And nobody thinks we're making weapons. But that doesn't matter. Almost none of the factories that get bombed are even suspected of making weapons by anybody who's involved. So practically speaking, what we do is we optimize our print flow. We print 24 hours a day. We use recycled plastic because plastic imports are also banned. And we use uh, solar power because, as well, electricity is, is maybe two hours a day or four hours a day. For example, right now, I'm at my apartment. There is no electricity. There hasn't been since last night. There won't be until sometime in the, in the morning. So it, it is really a process where we try to do as much as we can with technologies that aren't necessarily meant for mass manufacturing purposes. Yeah, well, the the criticism we've normally had for 3D printed use for producing many units of the same little thing was that it wasn't efficient uh, and often environmentally having a larger footprint. But in your case, this is either that or nothing. It's a completely different scenario. Right. That's right. And our ecological footprint insofar as is possible is very nearly zero. Gaza has a 100% plastic recycle rate because of the fact that there's nothing in, nothing out. Nothing's allowed in, nothing's allowed out. So largely we use recycled ABS that we grind up, pull into filament ourselves, and then, of course, using solar power 
and then the solar power also is used to print it. So our, our footprint in that sense is minimal. Uh, the devices are being used also much more than they should be. Really, a tourniquet, any doctor will tell you, it's crazy to even imagine using it more than once. And yet we've been using tourniquets up to 10, 15 times each because reusing is the easiest way to put a device back into, into circulation. None of it is ideal. None of it is what I would want. As Palestinians have been saying for, for many, many years, you know, give me better tools and I'll let go of my more crude tools. Uh, but it is working and it is actually at this point literally saving lives, which is a, which is a huge um, responsibility and privilege that we have in this work that we're doing. So you're in Gaza right now, and what is the response uh, that you get from the public and from the uh, medical community there of, about what you're contributing with the project? Initially, when we first started, the response was skepticism, of course. People thought that there's no way that something that we could make domestically could be as good as something that we could buy from the outside. So if you can imagine the, the problems that your project faces, trying to convince people to reuse the equipment they have instead of buying new, and now add on to that the inferiority complexes of colonialism and all of these other issues that are involved. However, with time, really the, the key is that most doctors just know. So even nobody cares what the acoustic testing says. I can show them charts all day. When they put that stethoscope in their ear, they know. They know in, in Gaza, in Canada, they've heard the best stethoscope in the world. In Gaza, they haven't. And so when they put it in, they hear things they've never heard before. They hear really sounds that, that they've heard you can hear, and that's it. So our goal is to put equipment in doctors and paramedics and nurses' hands because the moment they see it and use it, they know that I would never use inferior quality on my patients. And that's not what this project is about. This project is about getting parity. It's not about getting good enough results. So the response has been pretty good in that sense. Wonderful. Um, in, in terms of the training element around this operation, We've experienced uh, um, being based in the past in maker spaces, you know, the struggle that people in excellent working conditions uh, in a very clean lab experienced when they're 3D printing. Um, how is it all working out in, in the context you're working in? And is it inspiring potentially young people to want to learn more on this? We brought 3D printing into Gaza where it didn't exist before us. In that sense, we brought something that everybody had heard about and had wanted to learn. Subsequently, the school system in Gaza introduced 3D printing into the high school curriculum. Most high school students will watch YouTube videos and learn about it abstractly, but some of them will come to our offices and see the 3D printers in action. We really do consider education to be such a big part of what we do and cultural change to be a big part of what we do. Uh, so training in the sense of teaching people how to do things is really important in that sense. But it's also a survival imperative. 
if we are the only office, if we're the only site where there are 3D printers or 3D expertise in Gaza, then one missile can undo this whole project. So very quickly, when we established expertise, we very quickly started to bring it out to other parts of, of the Gaza Strip so that if or when our offices get bombed, everybody knows where our offices are. During the next war, there's no reason why we wouldn't be bombed. Um, and so if that happens, there are other people who can continue. If we're assassinated or killed, then our work can continue. These are not necessarily the same considerations everywhere, but I bet if you put assassination into the real list of possibilities, then most people would become much better at expanding the knowledge base of their project. And the model that you have established, has it attracted interest from people in other parts of the world that are low-resourced or fairly isolated and uh, need something similar? Oh, absolutely. Everybody who has, it's like they say, you know, happy people are all happy the same way, you know, but uh, low resources are different in very different ways. There are very different reasons why other people need projects like this. But in the end, the end effect is that many people around the world, unfortunately, really need projects like this. We haven't designed this project to be, strictly speaking, a project about low resource. We've designed this project to be a project about independence. And that is something that a lot of people don't have, more so than there are people who don't have low resources. For example, in Canada, which is a very rich, very high-resource country, there's still a huge need for this project because there is no independence when it comes to making your own devices, examining your own devices, and repairing your own devices. For example, we're also working on a pulse oximeter, which is the thing where uh, they put it on your finger and they read your oxygen and other things. If any part of that breaks in Canada, that device gets thrown away. It's a $1,000 device. We make it for $25, and it's, every part of it is repairable. Now, that, that device is not yet through clinical trials. It's not yet usable, but it will be someday. And when it is, then why would a hospital in Canada buy a $1,000 device that they can't repair as opposed to a $25 device where they can order replacement parts from DigiKey and have the full schematics for how to repair it the very next day? Right. You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM, and we are joined by Dr. Tarek Lubani from Gaza. Tarek, one of the issues that you are exploring around uh, fixing the medical ecosystem, in a sense, is beyond the reach of the kind of 3D printed devices that you are manufacturing, your team is manufacturing now. Can you tell us a bit more about what, what your latest findings are? We're working on anything that allows us to create these sorts of devices. And very quickly you realize that in order to advance, you have to move on to devices that involve electronic prototyping. So we're doing that as well and a few other things. Really, the project is to take devices that have been around for quite a while that are an established part of medical practice. We're not trying to break any new scientific ground in medical devices yet. 
and then to make them easy to manufacture and such that people are able to manufacture them in places of low resource and low skill. For example, in the Gaza Strip, you can count on engineers having access to, um, to certain kinds of components, but not all of them. You can count on them being able to make one-sided PC boards, printed circuit boards, but not uh, two- or four-sided, uh, four-layer two, four or two-layer uh, printed circuit boards. This means that, that the main project really has an iterative aspect. We move up into more and more complex devices until, in the end, I, I mentioned we want to make a dialysis machine, which combines uh, sterile creation of medical devices with printed circuit boards, with motors, with 3D printed parts, and, of course, the clever engineering to put all of that together. Right, because also, I suppose, um, how do you train or how do you introduce uh, this um, initiative in hospitals, for instance, um, for, um, yeah, like the training of actual biomedical professionals who are using these devices and who might need to repair them or maintain them for them to work properly? The, the funny thing about it is that the first step is getting a biomedical engineering program into Gaza. So there was no biomedical engineering program when we started, right. and obviously not, not just through our work, but through the work of many, many people, a program has been started here, which we collaborate with to train people in how to make devices. We have expertise in the manufacture. Other people have expertise in the theoretical. Just the idea of having that field is step one. And then step two is actually walking into the hospital with all of this Uh, stuff that we're doing and saying to them, okay, what do you want? Not, not what is commonly told to people in low resources. Very often NGOs come in and tell you what they're going to do for you. We ask them, what do you want? So, for example, here we were talking about high-tech gadgetry. We walked into the hospital and we said, what do you want? And they said, actually, we need printed gears. It turns out that a gear for a medical device costs something like $50 per gear which is insane. So now you're multiplying the difficulties of obtaining these devices with the incredible cost of the devices. So we started a project to make gears. We took free CAD, uh, taught people how to make gears in free CAD, taught them how to print, and off they went. They're saving literally thousands of dollars in gears. I would have never thought that when we started this project that we'd be making gears of all things. And But for, uh, you for, follow the need. For our listeners, uh, when you say gears in the medical sense, what, what, what do you mean? Right. <laughs> Literally. So, for example, when here you can imagine that x-ray machines are not digital, they are mechanical. That means that a machine has to push film through a series of rollers and chemicals to develop it. And it does that in a very harsh environment of chemicals that are etching. And it does that using plastic gears, literally gears that turn the rollers. These gears break down at a phenomenal rate. There's 20 of them per machine, and they all need replacing about once every six months. Imagine then that if you order something from outside, you're basically waiting between seven and 12 months, depending on the mood of the Israelis and the politics, for it to come in. 
in addition to the cost. So you're paying for, what, $50 by 20 years, you know, $1,000 per routine change-up. What does that result in? That results in machines that barely function because you want every gear to go to failure. And it also means that machines often idle are broken completely because once a gear does fail, all it takes is one to completely fail and your machine has stopped. Instead, what we've done now is we've, we've changed it so that the moment a gear fails or looks like it's going to fail or even routinely maintained, we print another one. It costs three cents, I think, was our working number with labor and with electricity and with the parts. Uh, and then off you go. Go replace as many gears as you want. Right. And so, the bonus is that they, they're in nice colors, nicer than, than they sell them in Germany. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense that you're directing this project towards what it's actually needed, I guess, and you can uh, steer it that way. We're actually uh, looking at the repair.org website, which uh, talks about medical devices. And there's a lot of barriers to medical devices repair in many locations. And we were thinking of software, though, because it's not really uh, talked about. So there's issues with not having spare parts or not having access to even like technical manuals, very basic information. But then uh, what's the issue with things that are left in hospitals for a long time and then their software is not supported? And they stop uh, working. The, the devices that we have all run beyond what their expected manufacturing lifetimes are. The x-ray device, for example, is probably something like 30 years uh, of age. So I believe the one that I had seen was manufactured sometime in the late 80s. And these devices were never meant to run as long as they do. The worst example of this is dialysis. Dialysis machines are not meant to run 24 hours a day in Gaza they do. Dialysis machines are not meant to be in commission forever in Gaza they are. So we we really do have these devices where we have a unique opportunity. We have a well-trained engineering force that is forced to fix them, but they don't have a particular system with which they can fix them. And if we can introduce uh, a few repair parts, that's good. But if we can introduce a culture of documentation, collaboration, and a general culture of repair that links them to other parts of the world and a wider community, that's even better. That's really the idea. And in spare parts, uh, that's not just the cost. It's also that some of those machines having been manufactured so long ago, you're finding that they're simply not supported. In our case, The, the biggest barrier by far is that we do have to source exotically. And very often, because the sources are varied, we don't have any unified entry supply chain. So it's a little bit easier once you've imported an item from one place to import it again, because you kind of understand who you need to ask, who you need to talk to. But <laughs> you're right that there's a big problem with availability with old devices. But that's not the primary problem we face. The primary problem we face is actually the blockade. The primary problem maybe faced in other places might be the actual lack of, of supply. But for us, generally, things, I guess most of the, the places where things are totally unavailable have already been abandoned. And so we're left largely trying to replace parts in a timely way where we don't have to buy a huge back supply. Uh, to stock just in case, because we can't really afford to do that. Right. 
Well, uh, Tarek, uh, we are humbled by your experience and we wish all the best for for your project going forward. And uh, we know it's, in a sense, the same fight that we fight for the right to repair. But here it's taken to a whole other dimension. And creating resilience is a lot more about understanding how we can create change ourselves and not just rely on other sources. Thank you very much Thank you. for being with us today. Thank you, Hugo and Isabel, for having me on the show. So, Isabel, we have a couple of restart parties coming up this weekend here yes. in London. So, if you like to fix anything, we have uh, 12th May at the Kingsgate Community Centre and 13th May in Tutin at Mushkil Asan. And Both yeah. events are in collaboration with local transition town uh, initiative so please join us uh, you've been listening to restart radio you can follow the restart project at uh, restart project on both facebook and twitter and on our website the restartproject.org we'll be back next week with another episode and meanwhile thanks to optonoise and cassini sound for their wonderful music made of lasers thanks 